Hey, Greg, are we good to go? Yeah, I think we're good. All right, great. Well, good morning, Calvary. Welcome to Sunday School. We're continuing in our introductory, our foundational lessons for our chronological study through the Bible. As you know, we're using our second edition of the Answers Bible Curriculum. Last week, we talked about the Bible's origin. Though God used men to write the Bible, the Bible is ultimately God's word. What we have in the Bible is the very breath of God. Every word, every sentence, every sentiment is God's. This fact has implications for the Bible's inerrancy, the Bible's authority, and the study of the Bible. When we study the Bible, and we talked about this at the end of last week's lesson, we want to recover the author's original intent and not simply read our own meaning into the text which is why we practice exegesis, which is why in this class we practice the inductive Bible study method, observe, interpret, apply. Now, I mentioned briefly last week that the doctrines of inspiration and inerrancy apply to the original autographs of the Bible, that is, the original text of each Bible book. But we only have copies of the originals today. So what about those copies? How do we know that those copies are accurate and trustworthy? How do we know that the Bible or part of the Bible has not become lost or corrupted over time? After all, such is the claim of various religious and cult groups, including the Jehovah Witnesses, the Mormons, and Muslims. In a variety of ways, they say the general translation or interpretation of the Bible is corrupted. But think about it with me. Does the Bible does the Bible say anything regarding its own accurate and lasting preservation? I ask you. Give me some feedback. Does the Bible say anything regarding its own preservation? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's a, a, a relevant scripture. The word of God is settled in heaven. Though that seems in that that sounds like it's in heaven. So what about earth? Let's think of some other scriptures. Um, yes, I see the hand. I'm sorry, I can't make out the face from here. Okay. Yeah. So that's another really. That's another interesting verse. Jesus. As an aside, in one of his dialogues with the, the Jews, he says, and scriptures cannot be broken, which there's a lot of assumptions in that statement. And one is that you have the word of God and it, it is accurate. You can't just say, oh, well, it was a mistranslation or, oh, it was, you know, a corruption. He says, no, scripture can't be broken. Very good. Yeah, Danny, thanks. Uh, what else? Okay, the, the verse we talked about last week from 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired of God, God breathed, and it talks about what it's able to do. It makes the man of God a adequate or complete, mature, and how can it do that if it's a corrupted word? So there's, again, there's some assumptions even in that statement. Roy, I think I saw your hand. Yeah, so, yeah, we see that that phrase. I, yeah, you might be right. It's in Psalm 119. The word of God endures forever. And there are a number of statements like that that talk about the word of God lasting. And I'll, I'll give you a few others for your consideration, your edification. Isaiah 40, verse 8, which says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And in commenting on this verse, the New Testament also says, 1 Peter 1, 23 to 25, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which we preach to you. And you know Jesus' own statement. Matthew 24, 
35. It's also in two of the other Gospels. Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Those are all pretty significant, along with the verses that you yourselves mentioned. We have various statements in the Bible about the Bible itself, God's word, not passing away, but continuing to endure. We should also note, though, there are statements regarding man's own responsibility to preserve and pass on God's word. For example, in Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 to 9, we hear this from Moses. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Later on in Deuteronomy, we hear also from Moses, Deuteronomy 29, 29, The secret things belong to Yahweh our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. And then in the New Testament, we have 2 Timothy 2.2. 2 Timothy 2.2, The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So just from this brief sampling of various scriptures, we do see two foundational principles when it comes to the preservation of God's word. God's people are responsible for preserving and passing on God's word faithfully. At the same time, however, God promises in his sovereignty to preserve his word. He says, my word won't pass away, and not simply in heaven, but on, even on earth. It's going to continue to accomplish the purposes that God has meant for it. Now, this preserved nature of God's word, the Bible, is a claim that is challenged by many people in our world from the scholarly higher critics to the guy in the street. How can you trust the Bible? It's surely full of errors. You don't think that such an old book hasn't been changed or corrupted over time, do you? How should we respond to this objection? We know, and I've been trying to emphasize this over the last number or last classes we've done together, we know fundamentally that the Bible is true. And is God's word because God has opened our eyes to see its truth. He's testified of its truth via his spirit, and he's shown us the divine glory of Christ through the word. We can't help but recognize these things. Thus, we believe the statements in the Bible about what we just talked about, about our need to faithfully pass on the word of God and God's promise to preserve it. And with this as an understanding and as a foundation, we can say something further. We can actually see how the word, or I'll say it this way, we can put the word to the test in a way. That's what I actually want to do with you in Sunday school today. Focusing on the Old Testament, we're going to look at two passages that are relevant for questions concerning the Bible's integrity. The first passage involves whether the Bible holds up in the process of copying and even translation over many, many years. What happens to the Bible over time? What does the Bible itself show regarding that? And in the second passage, it involves whether the Bible can survive purposeful attempts to change or destroy it. We're going to look at how the Bible describes these situations. Along the way, we're going to see how God himself affirms the canonicity of the Old Testament, of the 39 books of the Old Testament. And after all this, we're going to consider what these things mean for us today, how they should affect us today. Well, I'm excited to go through this with you. Let's pray and ask God's blessing before we continue. Our great God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us your word. And we thank you that you didn't just give it originally, but you have caused it to be preserved. You've caused us, Lord, to have access to it. And that is a very gracious thing. Lord, I pray that you help me to be able to explain even what your word says about itself and its preservation, even what you demonstrate in the word about its preservation. I pray that you help me to be able to explain that. And I pray that you would impress the momentousness of this truth 
on those who listen today. I pray, God, that we'd be changed, that we would give you more glory, that we would be sanctified by your great truth. Make us to know you more, God, and to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, to examine God's ability to preserve his word over time, let's look at the book of Luke. Luke chapter 24, verses 13 to 27. Luke 24. Now we're going to see in this passage some of the things that we've already noted in, in some of the verses you mentioned. There are some assumptions, there are some ideas implicit in the New Testament, either from what Jesus says or from what the apostles say, that concern the preservation of the word. And one of those places is here in Luke 24. So follow along with me as I read verse 13 down to 27. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene was a prophet mighty indeed in word in the sight of God and all the people. Now the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. And also some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them, the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Now, the account of this exchange with, with Jesus and the disciples on the road to Emmaus continues, but the section that we're most concerned with uh, finishes in verse 27. Let's follow our inductive Bible study method as we take a look at this text. And we start with just simple observations of the text. Notice the situation. We have a post-resurrection appearance to G or of Jesus to two disciples, and this is on Resurrection Day, on the road to Emmaus, a town not too far from Jerusalem. Notice that these two disciples at first are sad, and they are supernaturally prevented from recognizing Jesus. They tell Jesus the reason for their sadness. They were hoping, not knowing that they were speaking to Jesus, they're hoping that Jesus was the promised one who was going to redeem Israel and bring in the kingdom of righteousness and justice foretold in the Old Testament. But Jesus' death did not seem to fit with that restored kingdom expectation, so they were sad. But notice Christ's response to their despair. He rebukes them, notice, he rebukes them for not understanding what was taking place in light of what Scripture always declared. Jesus then goes on to explain the things concerning himself and notice where he goes for this explanation. He goes to the scripture. He begins with Moses and all the prophets. And then it says he goes to all the scriptures. Now note that the scripture, the reference to scripture here does not include the New Testament, since none of it was written at this point on this day. The New Testament letters and books had not been written. Therefore, when we see the term scriptures here, we are technically referring to only the Old Testament. Of course, the New Testament would fit in being the things concerning Jesus. All right, so these are some important observations, but what do they mean? Let's go to our second step now and talk about some interpretation questions. What relevant conclusions can we reach based on our observations of the passage? First, by rebuking these disciples for not believing scripture, 
What does Jesus assume regarding them and scripture? What do you think? That the scripture is true. That's an assumption that the scriptures are true. What else? Say that again. The scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, are to be believed and trusted. Good, yes. But a more basic assumption is the people, these disciples even, they have the scriptures. In rebuking them, he assumes that they have the scriptures and they're able to understand the scriptures. And more than that, they are responsible to understand the scriptures and believe them, just as you were saying. And these are these are assumptions, these are implications relevant for our questions regarding the Bible's preservation. You see, in Jesus' rebuke, Jesus confirms that during his time, the Old Testament scriptures were still existent. They were not lost, they were not corrupted, despite some of the original writings in the Old Testament being more than a thousand years before Jesus' own day. Yet, Jesus says, you still have the word. It's still accessible to you. They are readily understandable. They are worthy to be believed. We can think about what Jesus does not say. Jesus does not say, well, I understand you missed what the scripture said because it's been a while since they've been written. Most of you aren't speaking or reading the original Hebrew anymore, probably relying on the Septuagint translation of the Bible. That is the Bible in Greek. And yeah, some of those important phrases probably got lost or mistranslated. That's not what Jesus says. He says, you have the scriptures. You have God's very word. Why are you not believing what it says? This is in line with the rebuke that we constantly hear from Jesus in the New Testament, especially towards the Pharisees. He says, have you not read? He appeals to the Old Testament scriptures. and He says, haven't you read? What's your problem in understanding? So Jesus' rebuke is significant. But his further explanation is also significant. What was it that Jesus explained to these disciples from the Old Testament? What do you think? Say that again. Right, so he's appealing to all those. And we'll talk about those divisions in just a second. You referred to the, the law and the prophets or the law, the writings and the prophets. He's appealing to those things. He's explaining from those things. But what is he explaining? That's right. It says in the text the things concerning himself. So what does that mean? What is he explaining about himself? Yes, yeah, Steve. Mm. Very good. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you said a number of valuable things, Steve. Uh, you referred to that other scripture in the New Testament, Jesus' rebuke to the Pharisees. It says, you think you have life in the scriptures, but these things talk about me. And indeed, I think you zeroed, it in, zeroed on it in a little bit more closely about the gospel. What even in the context here, he says, didn't the Christ have to suffer and then enter his glory? Didn't you see that from the scriptures? And that's what he's explaining. He's explaining the, the gospel of salvation, the things concerning Jesus that are involved with the gospel. And really, no, 
all the things related to that by going to the different sections of scripture. And then you've already pointed to some of those things, which would have been sacrificial system, the various prophecies regarding the Messiah. All those things are involved. And it says Jesus is going to the scriptures to explain those things. Now, it says that Jesus goes to the goes to Moses and all the prophets. Now, I think Roy was alluding to this. This was a common way to divide the Old Testament scriptures conceptually in, in Jesus's day. You had the law, Moses, the books of Moses, that would be the first five books, the Torah. And then you had everything else, which would be labeled under the prophets. Yes, even the history books, uh, many of them were considered to be written by prophets. They were, they were put in that category. There was also a three-way division that was also used to conceptualize the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And the writings were headed by and most mostly consisting of the Psalms. And so that's why you see in verse 44, if you just glance down in the same chapter, Jesus refers to the Old Testament this way as well. He said, these are my words, which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So he refers to the two-way division. He refers to the three-way division, but he's really referring to all of the Old Testament. This is significant as well. By appealing to the Old Testament in this way, Jesus is saying something about the authority and canonicity of the Old Testament writings. But more on that in just a second. Now, here's kind of like a, a broader question about this passage. By relating this exchange between Jesus and these disciples, what truth does Luke, the author of this book, uh, author of this book, want his audience of newly converted Gentiles to understand? It's this question we might need to know a little bit more about the book of Luke as a whole, but remember that in both Luke and Acts, Luke is concerned about confirming the gospel to the Gentiles as authentic. Not some aberration that just Paul came up with or some other people came up with. No, this is the way it's always been in God's plan. And by showing Jesus' own death and resurrection and glorification as being foretold in the scriptures, it shows that, indeed, the gospel salvation that you Gentiles have believed, it's, it's always been there. It's always been foretold. The gospel message is consistent. This is not some new idea. This is what the scriptures have always said. Therefore, your faith rests on something sure. We can say it this way. The Old Testament has always declared the message about a Messiah who would suffer on behalf of his people to save them from their sins. Now, Steve already alluded to the fact that this is all of Scripture, even the things that we might not think of as being particularly prophetic about Jesus. How can all of Scripture be talking about Jesus? Well, we're going to actually, that's one of the things we're going to do in our Sunday school curriculum is that we're going to go through the different sections of the Old Testament and see how these things speak about Christ, how they point to Christ. So that's one thing we'll be exploring further. But even in Genesis 3.15, we're seeing a prophecy about Christ and the, and the curse on the serpent. Or the word of God to Abraham about all the families of the earth being blessed through his seed. These things are all pointing to the gospel, pointing to Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that more as we go along. Now, to come back to something I said. Implicit in Jesus' explanation is a recognition of various writings as authoritative, even divinely authoritative. The books of Moses, the law, the Psalms, a.k.a. the writings, and the prophets, they constitute what Jesus referred to as the scriptures. So then, here, as in many other places in the New Testament, Jesus himself affirms the canonicity of the Old Testament as recognized by the Jews. Let me underscore this point a little bit. Why is it that we believe that the Old Testament canon, that is the set of 39 books, is God-breathed scripture? Among other reasons, the chief reason is because in Jesus, God himself confirms those writings to be his divine word. There are other reasons, as I say, but the, fundamentally we believe the Old Testament is God's word because Jesus himself affirms it as such. Our Lord affirms the Old Testament all of the Old Testament, to be his word. And this was the word, as we've already seen, that lasted. This is the word that God preserves. Let me give you some stats about the Old Testament. 
that just show you the significance of this, the Old Testament covers about 3,600 years of history, starting from creation till the time of Israel's return from exile in Babylon. Now, in terms of when the books were written of the Old Testament, Moses writes the Torah, the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible around 1410 or so BC. Malachi, the last prophet, to speak from God before a period of silence, before the coming of Jesus, he writes his book around 400 BC. So it's about a thousand years between the first and last writers of the Old Testament. That's a lot of time. A thousand years ago, we were uh, still in the Middle Ages. I mean, America hasn't even been around for 300 years. A thousand years goes by between the two different bookends of the Old Testament. By Jesus' day, the 39 books that we know as the Old Testament had been recognized by the Jewish rabbis as from God. I'll talk a little bit more later about the criteria that uh, people in, in the ancient times used to affirm which scriptures were from God and which ones were not, to recognize which ones, or I'm sorry, which were actually scripture and which were lesser writings. But these had been affirmed by Jesus' day, and then Jesus affirmed that. Some rabbinical scholars had even worked to translate the Old Testament into a Greek translation called the Septuagint. Now, why did they do this? Well, this is because many Jews, especially by Jesus' day, had become Hellenized. That is, they'd become Greekified. The Greek kingdoms had been established over the Middle East after the conquest of Alexander the Great, and therefore many Jews took on Greek culture and Greek language. They needed the Bible translated into Greek. So then, despite the expansive subject matter, long periods of time separating the different biblical writers, language obstacles that existed for the Jews of Jesus' day, Jesus nonetheless confirms that they have the accurate and canonical word of God, and that the whole word is really about him. This shows us something. This shows us that just as the Jews of Jesus' day could rely on the Old Testament as the God-breathed word, so can we. If God was able to preserve his word for a thousand plus years from the original writings to Jesus's day, he's certainly able to do that for the next a thousand plus years to our own day. This is the word, the word of the Lord proving true. God preserves his word. And that is a great thing. Now one might say, all right, so maybe God is able to preserve his truth in the face of time and language changes. But what about those who might purposefully try to corrupt or eliminate God's word? How can we be sure that some ne'er-do-wells didn't tamper with the word of God we use today? Well, let's look at another situation in the Bible that specifically speaks to that issue. And for this, let's turn to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 36. Going back into the Old Testament. Jeremiah 36, we'll be focusing on verses 1 to 26, but we won't read the entire section. We'll skip a few verses, just paraphrase. Quick word of context here. We're in the reign of King Jehoiakim. He's one of the last kings of Judah before Judah is taken into exile. Remember, after the reign of Solomon, we have the two kingdoms, northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. Northern kingdom eventually goes into exile under Assyria. Southern kingdom will go in exile under Babylon because both kingdoms and their kings turn away from God. They're sinful. Jehoiakim is one of those wicked kings, and he's one of the last kings in Judah. But follow along with me as we start in verse 1 and read this account. Jeremiah 36, starting verse 1. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from Yahweh, saying, Take a scroll. And write in it all the words which I have spoken to you concerning Israel and concerning Judah and concerning all the nations from the day I first spoke to you, from the days of Josiah, even to this day. Perhaps the house of Judah will hear all the calamity which I plan to bring on them in order that every man will turn from his evil way. Then I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. Then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of Yahweh which he had spoken to him. Right. We've read the first four verses. We're actually going to skip down to verse 17 now. I'll paraphrase the intervening verses. Jeremiah has written this scroll via Baruch, but Jeremiah is not allowed to go into the temple. Baruch takes the scroll in Jeremiah's stead 
goes into the temple and reads the words of Jeremiah to the people. Uh, some of the king's officials, King Jehoiakim's officials, hear this reading from Baruch, and they ask Baruch to come with the scroll and read the whole scroll to them. Baruch does so. Now look at verse 17. And they asked Baruch, saying, Tell us, please, how did you write all these words? Was it at his dictation? And Baruch said to them, He dictated all these words to me, and I wrote them with ink on the book. Then the official said to Baruch, Go, hide yourself, you and Jeremiah, and do not let anyone know where you are. I'll pause there again for a second. Just make a few observations here. Uh, notice that we're in historical narrative. Jeremiah is instructed by God to write God's word. Really, the book of Jeremiah, when he says, write everything that I've declared to you up till now, he's basically saying, write the book of Jeremiah. He does so. Well, sort of. Baruch is the one who actually writes the scroll at Jeremiah's dictation. But this is okay. This functions with the doctrine of inspiration. Actually, we had the same thing happening in the New Testament. Some of the books written by Paul were actually literally written by a secretary or an amanuensis. Yeah, we actually hear some of them even named the New Testament. I like that line. I think it's in Romans. He says, I, Tertius, greet you who write this letter. But that's okay. God is superintending even the, the functions of secretaries or scribes. We have that happening here with Baruch. Notice the king's officials tell Baruch to take Jeremiah and hide. Now, why would they do that? Well, certainly the nobles sense that there will be some sort of danger from the king as a result of what Jeremiah has written and what Baruch has read aloud. There are, in fact, some sections of the prophecy of Jeremiah that specifically speak about the king, Jehoiakim. And they don't have very nice things to say about Jehoiakim. In fact, they prophesy judgment against Jehoiakim and his utter humiliation. The king might not like that. So they tell Jeremiah and Baruch to go hide. Let's see if they're correct in their premonition as to what the king will do. Let's continue reading down in verses 20 to 26. Verse 20. So they, the officials, they went to the king in the court, but they had deposited the scroll in the chamber of Elisha the scribe. And they reported all the words to the king. And the king sent Jehudi to get the scroll, and he took it out of the chamber of Elisha the scribe. And Jehudi read it to the king, as well as to all the officials who stood beside the king. Now the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month, with a fire burning in the brazier before him. When Jehudi had read three or four columns, the king cut it with a scribe's knife and threw it into the fire that was in the brazier until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the brazier. Yet the king and all his servants who heard all these words were not afraid, nor did they rend their garments. Even though Elnathan and Deliah and Gemariah pleaded with the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. And the king commanded Jeremiel, the king's son, Zariah, the son of Azrael, and Shelemiah, the son of Abdeel, to seize Baruch the scribe and Jeremiah the prophet. But Yahweh hid them. All right, let's make sure we followed what happened here by doing some more simple observations. The officials initially hide the scroll in a scribe's chamber and simply relay the scroll's message to the king. But when the king hears the report about the scroll, he commands that the scroll be brought to him and read in his presence. And as the king hears the scroll read, he pauses the reading every so often, and he has part of the scroll cut off and then put into the fire. Notice that certain officials plead with the king not to burn Jeremiah's scroll. But notice the king and those attending him not only do not stop burning the scroll, but the author is keen to point out to us, Jeremiah is keen to point out to us, they also do not become afraid and they do not tear their garments. And you know, tearing garments, that would have been a sign of sorrow and repentance. Lo and behold, when the whole scroll is consumed, the king commands that Jeremiah and Baruch be seized. But notice that this command from Jehoiakim is thwarted because God himself hides Jeremiah and Baruch. Let's move to the interpretation step again and ask some more questions. The king did not need to have the scroll burned piece by piece. He could have just thrown the whole thing in all at once. So why did he do that? Why did he have 
a long, drawn-out, reading, cutting, and burning ritual. What do you think? Yes, Magda. Okay, may partly be due to simple curiosity. I want to know what everything in it said. Yes, Rob, what else? Right, I think there's definitely an expression of pride and disdain here. And part of the reason is because of what Jeremiah notes for us that in response, they do not fear and they do not tear their garments. This appears to be that the king is making a statement. He's saying, I have nothing but contempt for these words. He's showing that he's not afraid of them. Yeah, there indeed may have been curiosity. I'm sure, I'm sure that there was. But he wasn't satisfied merely with the report about the scroll. He wanted to hear every single word of it and then have it destroyed. And this is an expression of his pride. Another question, why does God protect Jeremiah and Baruch? Now, truly, God often protects the righteous from the designs of evildoers, though sometimes he allows the righteous to suffer persecution or even martyrdom. But it may be that partly God is just doing what he does, protecting his own. He did actually promise in Jeremiah 1.8, when Jeremiah was beginning his ministry, when he was commissioned by God as a prophet, God promised Jeremiah that he would protect him, that he would deliver Jeremiah from his enemies. So there is some of that, but there's also something else. There's another specific reason that Jeremiah and Baruch are protected by God, and that's because of what verse 28 and verse 32 say in the following context. What is it that God's going to have Jeremiah do? Well, he's going to write the scroll again. Baruch and Jeremiah together, they're going to write the scroll again. And in fact, they're going to add more to the scroll. He's going to add more revelation to it. You know, this is very interesting. In essence, God is saying in response to Jehoiakim, you're going to burn my scripture? Well, not only will you be judged for your evil, but I'll just have my prophet write it again. So did Jehoiakim succeed in escaping from or contradicting or destroying God's word? Not at all. In fact, Jehoiakim himself is soon destroyed by God, just as God prophesied in the book of Jeremiah. So in summary of this historical account, we see how an arrogant king not only ignores the gracious warnings of judgment, that he and Judah might repent and be spared. But he also in vain tries to destroy God's word and the people God used to write and declare it. So what is the main idea that Jeremiah is communicating to his original audience and even to us? I would say it's this, the folly of opposing God's word and God's messengers. God has determined that his word will stand preserved. God has determined that his word will go forth. Those who hate God and hate God's word may prevail for a short time by destroying copies of the word or even by getting at the messengers of God's word. But God always ultimately prevails. Those who oppose God, those who oppose God's word, only destroy themselves, both temporally and eternally. From these two accounts today, we see vividly illustrated how God preserves his word. We see his promises in the scriptures to do so, and then we see illustrated in the scriptures how he actually does so. God keeps his promises. And if God is able to preserve his word, despite the passing of centuries, despite changes in languages and cultures, and despite the attempts of evildoers to pollute or destroy God's word, we can be confident that the copies of the Hebrew Old Testament, the Greek New Testament, and even our English translations of those copies that we have today are accurate and thus authoritative and life-giving as the word of God. It is in this word, it is in the word that we have, that we are to believe in order to be saved and in order to grow in Christ-likeness. Now, if this is all true, and it is, the main question that you need to ask is, how do you treat God's word? How do you regard God's word? 
you should be seeing more and more that this is no mere word of man. Subject to great errors, changes, and loss, this is the word of God, preserved graciously for you, so that you might hear it, read it, believe it, and abide by it. So are you doing that? Do you treasure God's word for what it really is? The word of God? Now I should note that though God promises to ultimately preserve his word, he does not promise that every people or every place will have access to his preserved word. In fact, one of the most terrifying judgments that God pronounces in the Bible appears in Amos chapter 8, verses 11 to 12. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it for you. Amos 8, 11 to 12. This is what God says. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord Yahweh, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of Yahweh. People will stagger from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of Yahweh, but they will not find it. Isn't that a scary thought? That you might seek to know God's word and not be able because God has taken it away from you. Now make no mistake, you and I, do not deserve God's word to be given to us. In fact, God has chosen in his holy wisdom to allow his word at certain times and certain places to pass away or to become corrupted. For example, 2 Kings 22 and 2 Chronicles 34, they both describe how the book of Moses, the law, the Torah, it, has, it was found in the temple after being lost for who knows how long. The people of Judah temporarily lost part of God's precious word, even the foundation of it, the books of Moses. How could that happen? How could there be such an extreme lack of reverence for God and for his word that this would happen in Israel? But it did. God allowed it to happen. Even in the days after the Bible, we do see this kind of tragedy unfold at different times. In the Middle Ages, certain key phrases in the Bible were not translated into Latin in the best way. And this helped the Catholic Church, the medieval Catholic Church, to go more and more off course. Over time, the Bible was no longer even in the common languages of the people. The different peoples of Europe stopped speaking Latin, many of them. And they couldn't read the Bible. They couldn't understand the Bible when it was read. During the Reformation, when there were many efforts to bring the Bible back into the languages of the people, even in England, the king of England tried to stop it, he tried to stop the Bible from being translated into English and distributed among the people. And he killed, he had executed, those who were trying to do so. That's why William Tyndale was killed. It was in an effort to get the Bible to the English people in a language they could understand. These things are not too different from what has even happened in modern times in, in communist countries where the Bibles are seized and destroyed. There's uh, a block on Bibles getting into the country and being distributed. Or uh, I've heard this recently about China. There's only a state-sponsored version of the Bible. I've heard China's working on that. But the result of having no Bible in a society are devastating. Losing access to God's word is terrible. And many communist countries can attest to this. If you read history of communist China, the history of communist Russia, or many other places, you will see that they've suffered so much as a result of turning against God, eliminating his word, or at least trying to eliminate his word. But this happened. God allowed this to happen. God ordained that this had happened. God is not obligated to give his word to any particular people. 
But what a horror it is to be without access to God's word. You can't know the words of life. You can't be saved. This is why, Calvary, this is why, brothers and sisters, you ought to be so grateful that despite these famines of the word, God has proven ultimately faithful over man's sin and even given his word to you. Now, again, we see this throughout history. Yes, the books of Moses were lost in Judah for a time, but God also made sure that they were found again. Yes, certain parts of the Bible were mistranslated in the Middle Ages, but God in providence sparked a movement to recover the original languages of the Bible and correct the errors that had beset the church in its Bible translation and in its doctrine for centuries. Even during those, even during those centuries where only the Latin translation was available, the mistranslations were not so bad that no one could be saved. That was the grace of God. Nevertheless, the recovery and dissemination of Scripture was critical to Europe's recovery of the gospel, people turning back to God and being saved. And speaking of communism, the fall of communism in Russia demonstrated another grace of God. I was just hearing actually somebody speak at Master Seminary who was a, a missionary to Russia in the days before its uh, the communist government's fall and afterwards. And he talks about how after the Soviet government fell, after the Iron Curtain was, after it fell down, it seemed that everyone in Russia and in these communist countries wanted a Bible. Anything that talked about the Bible, they just, they wanted to get their hands on it. He says, if you had a Christian tract and you offered it to someone, everyone else around that person wanted one too. They were hungry for the word that had been denied them for so long. That was gracious. Even though God was not obligated to give his word, he did so. Even in those places that had forsaken it for so long. So again, and I ask you, I want you to see the significance of this truth. Do you realize how gracious it is that God never allows his word to pass away? Ultimately, he may allow it for certain times, but ultimately he never allows it to pass away. And he's given you access to that word. Do you cherish the Bible accordingly? Do you thank God? Do you praise God? Do you love God accordingly? Or do you see the Bible as just another book, just another book that you therefore never really pick up, never study, never talk about it, never apply it? Don't you realize what you have? Let me share with you another story related to God's gracious preservation of his word. And you see this little note there on the slide. For the longest time, the earliest copies we had of Old Testament scriptures were from the 900s AD. Now that's a long time after the Old Testament canon was finished. Last book at 400 BC, the earliest copies we had were only in the 900s AD. So Middle Ages. And for a long time, people just had to accept by faith that this is, this is the corrupted word. Or, I'm sorry, this is the uncorrupted word. Trust what the Bible says. Trust the Holy Spirit's testimony of the scriptures. And that's why I say, indeed, that is the foundation for why we believe why we believe the Bible. But God further affirmed, God further confirmed that trust by the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. In 1947, archaeologists discovered uh, in, uh, in Qumran, Israel, a set of writings that had been preserved and hidden from around 150 BC, so way earlier than any of the other texts that we had found of the Old Testament. And among these, this collection, there were, uh, uh, of the 900 texts, 900 plus texts in Qumran, there was nearly a complete set of the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament canon. And the most amazing thing was when comparing these ancient manuscripts, the Dead Sea Scrolls, to the medieval, copy, medieval copies that were a thousand years removed, Guess what they found? They found that these texts were virtually identical. That over a thousand years, the careful copying of the Masoretes and the Jewish scribes and even the Christians, there was not corruption. 
the few changes that did exist, the differences that did exist were mostly just spelling, different spelling. But the word was preserved. God keeps his promises. You see, God in his providence, in his gracious providence, has so moved men in history to care about preserving the word of God. It is our responsibility, but God is the one working through us to fulfill that responsibility. This is why the Jews in the time before Jesus, and even since then, and this is why the Christians since the time of Jesus have carefully and repeatedly copied and translated the word of God. These are not people just conducting a fly-by-night operation. If you knew how meticulously the Masoretes copied the Jewish scriptures, I think it would really impress you. Uh, even in some of my classes, I've been, I've been hearing about this, but they actually, as part of copying a certain book, a certain scroll, they would count the number of words and make sure it was the same number of words as in the original document. And it also marked the midway point of, the, of each book. And, and they do other things besides these just to make sure that they had, they had correctly copied or most accurately copied what they had been given. And that's, that's the same kind of uh, respect that the Christians in the Middle Ages also practiced in terms of preserving the copies of Scripture. Not just the original Greek, the Hebrew, the Aramaic, but also even the translations. And we have, we have so many copies of those Scriptures today that we can be more confident than ever in God's preservation of the Word. I mentioned this statistic last week, but... By comparing the many texts, which is the, the science of textual criticism, just comparing the copies so that you can discern what the original said, we can be sure that 99.99% of the original text is reflected in the copies we have today. And the remaining 0.01% is in places of the Bible that have no significant effect on doctrine or practice. In fact, modern study Bibles usually point out where those places are. So of all people in history, we have the most reason to be confident that God preserves his word. Even if we didn't have all these stats, we do have God's promises, and we do have the Holy Spirit's testimony as we read the word. But beyond that, God has provided abundant evidence that he preserves his word. We have a calling to help to faithfully pass along, pass on God's word, but God in grace is superintending it all. So, a uh, third question I'm just going to feature by way of application. Application. The next time someone tells you that the Bible is full of errors, it's corrupted, surely not worth your belief, you can respond in a couple of ways. One is, ask them to point out the errors. Oh, it's full of errors? What errors? A lot of people will go to that excuse without having any evidence that there really are any errors in the Bible. Or if they do have a specific objection, oh, this thing doesn't agree with this thing. You can answer it. We, we, we deal with, in this class, how to respond to certain objections, but as you become more familiar with the scriptures, you can answer those questions. There is an answer to every objection to the scriptures because God's word is preserved. God's word is inspired, and it is without error. So ask the person to point out the errors if he makes that assertion. Also tell him about God's promise that we discussed today, how God kept his promise in the scriptures and in history. And tell him, if you're able, tell him that the real issue is not the trustworthiness of the Bible, but the untrustworthiness of man. Man loves his sin and loves his idols. Therefore, he will seize on any supposed corruption in the Bible as an excuse not to repent and believe. But this is why we declare the gospel. This is why we want to tell people there's someone God has accomplished salvation for people like you, for people who need new hearts, for people like me. God has done this in grace. Let me tell you, you must repent and believe because of this great thing that God has done. Those are some applications that I've come up with. But before we close, are there any questions or comments on what we've discussed today? Yes, Steve.
Yeah, that's that's worth reemphasizing. Thanks, Steve. Even if we didn't have the Dead Sea Scrolls, even if we didn't have some of these different examples from history of how God preserves his word, that would be fine because we have the supernatural word of God. This word shows reality. This is what the spirit uses to save people. That's why we are chiefly concerned with declaring the scriptures, declaring what the Bible says. We want to show people that it's true. We want it. We want people to read it for themselves because that's what's going to be the most impactful thing. That doesn't mean we can't use evidence. That's why I stressed even in our beginning lessons, use evidence, but always from the perspective of the foundation of God's word. You, you, you're not going to pretend that the Bible is not true or might not be true. No, start with scripture. Use scriptures as your foundation. And that's the only way that you can rightly discern the evidence. But even those evidences outside the scriptures, just as you were saying, Steve, uh, they're ultimately not what's going to save a person. What's going to save a person is the Spirit's conviction as they hear the truth of God, as they hear the Word of God, the living and active Word of God. So if you can deal with a superficial objection like, oh, oh of course it's been corrupted, you can point out to people, well, the Bible shows, or the Bible declares that it's that God preserves His Word. We even have evidence of that. But the real issue, my friend, is your heart. You don't want to submit to God, even though you know that he exists. Even as you hear these scriptures, you know these things to be true. But God, in patience, has offered you has offered you a chance to repent and be saved. That's, that's valuable, Steve. Thanks for mentioning that. Other questions or comments? Roy. Yeah, thanks Thanks for mentioning that, Roy. Uh, I'll just summarize what you said briefly. The same sort of process where we discovered earlier texts in the Dead Sea Scrolls that confirmed the Middle Age copies of the Hebrew, we've, we've experienced a similar result when it comes to the New Testament texts, where we only had later copies of that. But then we found earlier copies that showed consistency, that showed the accuracy even of the, the, the copies that we had. And yeah, the, the copies have just multiplied. You've heard this before, but the Bible is the most well-attested ancient document in the world. Other works like um, things written by Cicero might have a handful of copies, but the Bible has thousands of copies, uh, different sections of the Bible or, or, or multiple books or even, even a whole set of the New Testament or Old Testament. We have all these copies which again just testifies, as you were saying, Roy, that God preserves his word. And we can be confident that we have the word of God, even though we don't have the original text. We have the original text reflected accurately in the copies, and thus we have the life-giving word. Because remember, the life-giving word is not ink on the page. It's the words. It's the words themselves. And God has preserved those, those words for us in grace. That's all we have time for this week. Next week, we are coming back to the New Testament side of this equation. We're going to talk about how God's word is complete and how we know that. Let's pray as we close. Lord God, we thank you for your word. What a great grace, God, that you would give us your word. Lord, we can imagine what it would be like to be in a famine of your word, to not have access to it, to not understand it, to not be able to even read it or hear it. But you and grace, God, have, have allowed us to hear your word, to know your word. And not just us, but many other people in the world. God, we know there are some who, who still don't have access to your word. And 
And you have called us to bring it to them so that they too can be saved. And yet, God, we're also aware that we are, we are to be sober about this. We cannot respond to such a great revealed salvation with apathy. We cannot neglect such a great salvation. Oh, God, I pray in your spirit that you would be so gracious as for us to regard you and your word with proper reverence, that we would treasure it, that we would believe it, that we would put it into practice. Oh, Lord, please protect us from doing anything less than this. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thank you all. See you next week.